This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is a returning favorite, Grace Lavery. She's an assistant professor of English right here at UC Berkeley. Her first book, Quaint, Exquisite, Victorian Aesthetics and the Idea of Japan, is forthcoming with Princeton University Press in 2019. And she's currently working on a book on the idea of technique. Grace Welcome. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's great to be here. It is so great to have you here. Is this your third appearance on the it show? It is my third appearance, but uh, my my name is different to the name I used last time. As is mine. Well, is not yours. last yeah. time, but the last time you were on. Yes. A lot has changed. Um, and I'm a little self-conscious that my voice might not have changed. But in any case, um, it's yeah, I have a new name. Yeah. Well, I, I can relate in, in a different way, but I can certainly relate to feeling anxious about the prospects of voices changing or not changing. One of the things that I was always anxious about was listening to my air dro- listening to my air, listening to my voice drop in real time on it's the air. It's never fun to listen to one's air. <laughs> Thanks, Grace. Um, and yeah, it, it can be difficult or strange to, to hear yourself again and think, do I sound wildly different? Do I sound the same? Do I want to? Well, your voice is beautiful. And what, what I have been, what I have, I found myself envious of it sometimes because I noticed that you know, your your voice changes with the medication that you're taking and simply through sort of practice and talking, whereas mine doesn't. There are all kinds of tricks that uh, I can try to deploy. Um, and I'm, I do some of them sometimes. Mostly I don't. Um, and I think that, I think, yeah, I wish that there were a pill I could take that would make me sound different the way I do. But at the same time, you know, I, I quite like my voice. I like my accent. I am mostly just impressed that you managed to avoid using the word technique. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, it's it's one of those words that, like exquisite for many years, uh, once someone uses it, my ears prick up. Uh, so I try to avoid using it because it gets me thinking in unreasonable terms about realist aesthetics and George Eliot and uh, mid-20th century psychoanalysis. No one really cares about any of that. I care about them. You don't have to say you care. I don't have to, <laughs> but I do. Um, so one of the many reasons that I'm excited to have you on the show is I think you are one of the all-time best guests I have ever had. Oh, um, very sweet. I mean, uh, obviously I'm biased the last time that you were on the show. Um, when we were listening to it in the car, we were so enthralled by our own chemistry that we ended up driving uh, 20 miles in the wrong direction in the middle of the night heading yeah. back into Livermore. And then we found ourselves a Chick-fil-A populated by dozens, if not scores, of Christian teenagers having a good time on a Friday night. Um, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful. It was a kind of utopia. In many ways, but, but I think the kind of is the really important part there. <laughs> I think there's a lot right underneath the yeah. surface um, that, that might have uh, scaled back that utopia. But I'm happy to have you on the show. Um, I'm happy that you're here. I love your name. I love you. Um, one of the things that has changed since the last time that uh, you were on the show is you are now, I'm, I'm going to say it, you are now my lover. I am your lover. Yeah. I was debating back and forth whether or not you I was going to use that horrible I phrase. I cannot believe you said lover. You are my lover. You could have gone with partner nope. or girlfriend. Lover. 
You went with, with a lover. Full yeah. Welshly arms. Yeah. Just nice. eating spiced meats I have known in the hot tub. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, but yes, you are now my girlfriend. So yes. I could not say it again. You couldn't say it no. after I said I'd known your body. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Absolutely. No one has ever seen my body. I don't have a body. This is slander. Yeah. Um, it's true. Yeah. You, you look at me as though I'm about to dispute it, but far from disputing it, I will affirm it loudly and proudly. And I think this is going to be your girlfriend. such a good show. I'm feeling uncomfortable in the most useful and interesting ways You're right blushing. Now. It's beautiful. It's horrible. <laughs> um, but I'm very, very happy that this is the, the way that we are going to give a lot of people advice right now. Let's do it. Let's please. Mm. Uh, would you read our first letter? I would love to. Is this butt out? Yes, it is. Excellent. Oh, my God. You're blushing just because I said the word butt. Okay. Butt out. Dear Prudence, over the weekend, I went shopping with a friend of mine. We were in a very nice boutique in the downtown area of our city, specifically designed for plus-size women. I tried on a jean skirt and stepped out to show my friend, and she said it looked great. It was not super short by any means. It hit me just above the knee. I bought it, changed into it, and we went on our merry way. As we were walking down the street, we decided to get some lunch and stepped into a restaurant nearby. I stood up at one point and tugged down my skirt because it had ridden up a bit. Nothing crucial was showing. Suddenly, this woman appeared and started berating me about wearing a skirt that shows off too much in front of small children. She ended her tirade by calling me a cow and stomping off. My friend wanted to leave, but my stubborn side kicked in and I said no. We had lunch and the manager came over to apologize, said that the woman had been ousted and offered to comp my meal. I thought all was well from there, but then this morning my friend sent me an email telling me to take back the skirt because it obviously draws too much attention and upsets people. I am not taking my skirt back, but I would love to tell my friend to shove it. Thoughts. So if I were handing out cheers and jeers mm-hmm. to everyone in this letter, a big round of cheers to the letter writer and the manager in question, mm-hmm. and a big old jeers to the lady uh, who yells at people at yes. restaurants um, and the friend. Yeah, the in, 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 in fact, I think maybe the friend gets more jeers. The friend needs to grow a spine and sh- sharpen up. Uh, it's his poor behavior. I would love to tell my friend to shove it is a great sentence. Um, and I think you should tell your friend to shove it. Uh, you know, if, if I had a friend who was doing this kind of, who evidently displayed some kind of embarrassment about my stylistic choices or potentially even, you know, I'm wondering if embarrassment about my body is a part of this. My friend may be embarrassed about... Uh, you know, the person says it's a plus size, uh, a store for plus size women. So there's possibly some kind of fat shaming element to this that is being implied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I don't see why you wouldn't tell your friend to shove it. Yeah, that was absolutely my first thought between the fact that it, it was a store for plus size women. Um, the loaded word that the lady on the tirade decided to use against the letter writer. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seemed to me like such an example of, you know, had you been wearing the skirt and been a thin person. Nobody would have said anything about mm-hmm. it, but because you were wearing it and showing your knees, um, people decided that that was going to harm children for some reason. Yeah, children are allergic to knees. They uh, the, the knees cause them to to get polio. Irreparable harm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that that was a. Usually, when mm-hmm. somebody starts talking to you in public and they are a stranger and they say something like, "What about the children?" It's a funny phrase. It is a funny phrase. Yeah. I I not not too long ago, you yeah. and I had a conversation that was not about um, you know what's skirts. amazing about this is that you are starting this anecdote you, I am. You, yeah you go for it look grace when i decided that i was going to have my lover on the show <laughs> and that i was going to use the phrase my lover yeah um and just cop to all sorts of things okay um, well let's talk about my titty tattoo i i was not going to actually mention <laughs> the tattoo part you have made too many assumptions what i'm trying to get at 
if if I may finish yeah. this story without mm-hmm. you you adding any more detail. We had had a conversation um, where I had expressed some discomfort. And at mm-hmm. a certain point, I did not want to look any more closely at my own discomfort. Mm-hmm. I did not want to examine it. I didn't want to think about it. Um, I certainly didn't want to ask where it might be coming from. And I did not want to feel like I was being a prude. Joke about the name of the column here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, what if there were children? And as I heard myself say that, I thought, oh, this is sad for me that I've gone to this mm-hmm. place. I know that this is not true. Um, I know that that is not my real concern. I I have, like, used the mere idea of children to defend myself from thinking about things that make me uncomfortable, and I need to try again. Well, you know, since you bring this up, I, I think what I remember from that moment, or what, one thing that really struck me about that conversation was that the realization around your motivation, or the, the thing that you realized about your own discomfort, quite surprised me, and, and it really uh, helped me to understand the situation in a new way. So I think this is a situation where, you know, feelings of ambivalence about other people's style and body choices or just bodies, um, it can hurt people very deeply, but also can lead to interesting conversations. And I think if we are able to talk more candidly with e- candidly with each other about feelings that we have about each other's bodies, um, that might be a good thing, even though those conversations may often get pretty tricky. Yeah. And I think it's very clear that the way those conversations should not go is by, you know, yelling at strangers uh, about showing their knees. No, God, Um, I'm not justifying anything that happens to any of these durable people. Uh, Merely that if the friend at this point is able to demonstrate the the requisite, abject, apologetic Mm -hmm. self-reflection, that might lead to an interesting conversation about why there was this embarrassment on the friend's part in the first place. Yeah, I mean, certainly, again, I'm not going to go on it. I, I will say, by the way, your tattoo looks fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, it's got a titty on it. It sure has. Um, uh, but I think one of the things that was really great was once I could get past that moment was just, you know, if, if you are uncomfortable with somebody else's body um, and the thing that you want to change is somebody else's body, it's easier to change your own sense of discomfort mm-hmm. um, and more productive usually. Um, but yes, so as to what this particular person should do, yes, um, I, I'm, I think the way that you handled yourself, letter writer, in public was fabulous. I'm so glad that the manager um, was thoughtful and generous. Um, that was extremely nice of you to say, no, 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 don't worry about the meal, but thank you for checking in. Yeah, the fact that your friend the next day thought, I don't want to risk that happening again. I would rather give in to the yelling women of the world um, than, you know, let my friend wear a skirt that we both agreed looks great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's I, making a bad choice. I assume your friend is a woman, I think. A timely reminder for all of us not to pay too much attention to other people being upset by things that we don't think they should be upset about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this did not happen to your friend. Mm-hmm. This happened to you. Um, so I think maybe don't use the actual phrase, I think you should shove it. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that's an American phrase. And I understand broadly what it means but the specifics are actually quite unclear to me what is it that is being shoved at least in an imaginatively i always picture just somebody shoveling like a file drawer shut oh um i know that that's not it but hmm. that's what i think of it's just like you know what shove it yeah. just shove it away just shove it put it away in the filing cabinet your filing cabinet We're not mine this. Yeah, yeah this is this is finished yeah in, in in my country, we have a game called Shove Haypenny, uh, which is the association for me. This is this has got to be a lie. It's this where has got to be one of those. Shove across the table. Is this like Conkers? Uh, it, it it's not not like Conkers, but it requires a specifically made board, um, and children don't usually have access to it. It's more likely to be played in a pub. Also, do they still have Haypennies? I thought they don't. It's a vestige of the days when they did have Haypennies. All right. 
leaving aside your whimsical British childhood <laughs> for a moment. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it obviously draws too much attention and upsets people. That's a hell of a thing to say about a skirt. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you can, to whatever extent you feel led, you know, you can certainly just say to your friend, I decline to take your advice mm-hmm. and that, and leave it at that and just go on your merry way. But you can also say, um, I think you should reconsider your response to unreasonable people in public who freak out when they see the knees of a plus size woman. Um, and I think that you should ask yourself why you want to placate unreasonable strangers, um, even though we both agree that that skirt looked great at mm-hmm. the time. Um, also, post a picture of yourself on the skirt. And I bet it skirt, looks amazing. I bet you look amazing. You know, you seem great. Yeah. If you have the option between siding with your friend who just bought a piece of clothing that they love mm-hmm. or a strange person who likes yelling at strangers about what they wear at restaurants, side with your friend who yeah. bought something they love. Absolutely. That just seems um, obvious. Yeah. And, you know, I bet it's amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. The subject line of the next letter is back to school. Question mark. Dear Prudence. My husband and I are friends with his former boss, Jared, and his girlfriend. We've had dinner at their place a few times. Their property is divided by the town line, and they used to send their nine-year-old son to school in our district. But we're told that this year, they have to send him to the other town their property is on. My husband went there alone the other night and texted me that Jared asked him if they could say that their son lives with us so that he can continue to go to school in his district. And my husband said yes and signed the papers for both of us. I was blown away. I couldn't believe Jared would take advantage of their relationship like that. They're no longer in the same department, but they still work for the same company. I couldn't believe that my husband would sign the papers just like that. Jared said it was just a formality. I feel like we are committing fraud against the school. The forms have already been sent in. What can I do here? Is there any way out of this without losing this relationship? Gross. What was it that you said yesterday? That yeah, The spinelessness of weak friends facing the grotesque privilege in which the boss class luxuriates i think also too it was something just like we can always assume the boss is wrong we can always assume the boss is wrong very clear in this case the boss is wrong yeah um i mean jared for goodness sake i mean it is a fake name that the letter writer has given him i I realize that but but there's a reason there must be something spiritually jared about him yeah um uh and and i think i i also feel at least fairly comfortable making some assumptions about what basis he's making this decision about schools on um yeah say more about that i I, I agree with you i remember this part of the conversation we were discussing yeah i I think generally speaking the like division of schools among um various zip codes and uh some schools having fabulous property taxes and getting lots and lots of money and other schools not um and usually that's a result of uh, among other things housing segregation and Mm -hmm. it's usually very fucked up mm-hmm. um, and my guess is that if this guy is resorting to pretending his kid lives on a different side of town um, and he used to employ your husband um, it is probably somebody who is already doing fairly well attempting to make sure that his kid does not have to spend any time with people who are not doing so well yeah there are a few different aspects of this that I think are really important one of which is exactly the racist division of school districting uh, racial d- division of school districts that you describe um, Another is the kind of weakness of husbands um, and how, the, the question of how to de- deal with one's weak hus- husband. Um, and then I think that's just, you know, I work in education um, and I find that th- th- there'd be something really gross about the idea of trying to game uh, a public school system 
uh, even if there's no racial dimension to it, what it really must come down to is I want my rich kid son or daughter to be around other rich kid sons and daughters. Um, and I, I think that that is selling your kids short um, in a really profound way. And there's a lot to say, I think, about the the ideology of the special child um, in the United States of America, which is, you know, by the way, something that I think we're even worse at in, in the UK in some ways. Uh, we wrote Harry Potter. You guys just like it. Um, That's the pull quote for this episode, <laughs> by the way. Um, but, you know, the idea of the special kid that needs to be taken away from uh, being schooled around, you know. Children. Children, average people, uh, and taken to the special school uh, is one that I think we all... Uh, would do well to 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 divest ourselves of it. It doesn't serve children well. Um, it, do, it doesn't serve communities well. Uh, yeah. So I think that's part of the story too. Yeah. So certainly, I, I think in principle, this is an objectionable practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that your husband texted you and then immediately signed the papers on your behalf mm-hmm. uh, is also worth fighting with him about. Um, and what you can do here is tell your husband that you are not, in fact, going to do the thing that he signed your name to and that he needs to figure out a way to undo it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will probably kick at that and you will find it, I imagine, distressing uh, the degree to which his loyalties lie on the side of I need to save face in front yeah. of my former boss because what if he employs me again? It's funny, both this story and the last one have this um, a similar pattern, I guess, where uh, a... A person to whom the letter writer reaches out as an ally, in fact, caves and acts spinelessly in relation to someone who is actually doing something much worse. Um, that's that's a difficult kind of relation to have with someone, because you know one of the things one wants from the closest people in one's life is that uh, you know they they will be able to defend their own positions. Uh, even and especially when that means disagreeing. I mean, if my husband profoundly disagreed with me about my position about school districting, I'd love to have that conversation. But I would like to think uh, that he would sign the forms for Jared because he thought it was the right thing to do rather than because he felt some kind of pressure. And I'm, Right. I'm really... Rather than it was just a formality. Exactly. That's the strongest yeah. case that he can make in favor of his decision to act unilaterally on your behalf. That's not a very strong case. It's just not. Yeah. And it implies a kind of bad faith. And conversations about, um, yeah, about about taking meaningful positions in the world, acting as though it mattered, making decisions as though one's choices mattered. Those those conversations can be hard too, but often pretty valuable. Yeah. So you know, I I don't know to what degree, um, you know, enrollment fraud is something that you could be liable for. Um, or that you could be getting in trouble, um, or that Jared and, and his family could be getting in trouble. Um, uh, it, it's certainly worth looking into in your area whether or not mm-hmm. there are any rules or laws that you should be uh, aware of. Um, That's true, but I don't accept the framing of this issue as a sort of mere bureaucratic white-collar finesse, yes. right? which I think the husband's going for. There is a kind of moral principle at stake regarding selective education, and... Uh, that's the conversation really worth having. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I don't think you should come at it from the perspective of we could get in trouble because, yeah. you know, um, that's not the reason that you object to it, and mm-hmm. rightly so. But it's worth knowing about um, just mm-hmm. in case that does happen. But I think um, to talk about the the that practice with your husband and also the practice of his signing your name um, without talking to you mm-hmm. beforehand, without your permission, um, those are two pretty big things. And I think to say... Um, 
you need to find a way to undo this or mm-hmm. I will contact the school and let them know that there is no child by that name living here. Mm-hmm. Um, and be prepared for him to get a little embarrassing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's going to it's gonna be a good conversation, I think. It'll be an, I think everyone's going to grow in that, except maybe Jared, who's a boss anyway, and growth is beyond his can. Um, by the way, it just feels really good that we're recording all this on Labor Day. Yeah, good um, point. That does feel yeah. kind, of, kind of meaningful. Yeah. Um, the, the last question, is there a way out of this without losing the relationship? Um, you don't have a relationship to this person. So I don't think, you know, other than a sort of general desire for your husband to treat people well, that should not be a huge concern of yours. Um, your husband, if his good relationship with this guy is totally dependent upon his signing his name to uh, papers pretending that that guy's child lives somewhere he doesn't so that he can go to a really richer school. Um, that's not much of a relationship. And given that they no longer work in the same department, I don't think um, he needs to worry over much about retaliation at work. Yeah, I, 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 I think the word relationship, yeah, as you say, can mean two things in this context. It could be um, the professional favors that the husband presumably expects to accrue by virtue of having done a sort of shady uh, bureaucratic misdeed for Jared, um, whose name I'm not going to say uh, any less maliciously than that. Um, and then there's the the question of your friendship with Jared and his girlfriend, um, which you mentioned in the first sentence. Those two things would be slightly different. And to the extent that your friendship is designed to obtain professional favors in the first place, it may be a relationship you'd want to rethink naming friendship. Yeah. Yeah, we've had dinner at their place a few times mm-hmm. that does not feel rich with, um, you know, a shared history and a, a deep sense of community. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you ate there a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly, Jared feels no uh, compunction about trying to take advantage, as you say, of this relationship in order to uh, conduct some shady behavior. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry that I wouldn't worry on your side about losing the relationship. Frankly, if I were Jared, I'd be worried. I think Jared should be more worried more often. I think that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, This next letter is also about work, but Mm -hmm. uh, in a very different vein. And you get to read it. Oh, yeah. So the subject line is a little more exciting than a podcast. Dear Prudence, I work in an office with a door. While my job is high skilled, sometimes there are menial components. Think data entry. I've tried listening to music and podcasts during these tasks but I'm still bored. If I use headphones and there's no chance anyone could overhear what I'm listening to, is it wrong to listen to erotic books on tape while I work? Erotic books. I was going to say, thank you for reading that last sentence um, in that particular tone of voice. Um, Congratulations. I could do it more English if you like. I think it's it's whatever you need, (laughs) but, but don't try to pin this on me. Um, congratulations on working in an office with a door, first of all. That's Mm -hmm. fabulous. Are there any potential downsides to working in a constant state of arousal? Mm, I can think of a few, yeah. Uh, and those downsides are all personal and and, and not moral. I mean, the question we've been asked is framed in terms of morality. So that's maybe something we should consider. But let's consider the practical downsides first. Um, one, uh, that it might interfere with your data entry, I guess. Uh, it might incline uh, you to start eroticizing the phrase data entry. Yeah, it, it might incline you to spend more time than you otherwise would on those menial tasks yeah. um, uh, to the you know detriment of your other work. Mm-hmm. It might uh, cause 
conflict and anxiety with uh, fellow co-workers? I, I'll just say this. Uh, you know, when it comes to the live chat, I occasionally uh, will type out something that I'm saying in the Slack channel to my co-workers. Mm-hmm. And I'll realize that's not what I meant to say. That's what I was thinking in my head. Mm-hmm. If I were doing that while listening to erotic podcasts, or mm. sorry, not podcasts, more exciting than podcasts. Are there erotic podcasts? I don't know. Wow. I'm sure that there are. At any rate, world we live in. I, I just feel like the odds are non-zero that you might someday type a word or a phrase that you are listening to and that does not belong in data entry. And that's potentially embarrassing or worse. Let's also, uh, here's where I think the moral question does come in, which is... Um, Although you have an office with a door, and presumably the data entry part of your job is not uh, one in conducting which you are often interrupted, but to the extent that you have any interactions with coworkers during this time, um, they may very well feel uncomfortable. Um, and the degree to which they feel uncomfortable is the degree to which you are sustaining a hostile work environment. Um, and in fact, engaging in a form of sexual harassment. Yeah, the whole there's no chance anyone could overhear what I'm listening to. Yeah. The odds might be very low, but headphones sometimes mm. fall out. Accidents sometimes happen. Tabs sometimes get left open. Um, if you have ever made an error in any other form of your work, assume that you will at some point make the error when listening to erotic audiobooks. Yeah. And ask yourself, are, am I willing to accept the potential outcomes of that? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, you know. Uh, sometimes works a little boring. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and I also, I, th- I think this is not uh, the, the the greatest plan for dealing with uh, the, the the grueling and unpleasant uh, aspects of menial labor in uh, an information economy or in a service economy. Um, but I also don't want to get super moralistic about it. I think that there are components where this could become uh, dangerous or could become a problem but you know once in a while i i, I don't know sure, I, 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 I feel like I, I don't want to come across as too puritan i i, I think that there's a there's a version of this that's quite innocent like oh i'm going to listen to you know an erotic story one time at work and that's going to be fun and then i'm going to go home and talk about it and i'm not going to do it constantly and i'm you know i think that there's a version of it that's probably okay yeah i don't want to say if you ever feel any sort of erotic charge when you are at work yeah. you need to go like scrub yourself off with right. Brillo pads and like return to just typing purely. Um, yeah, you're not Saint Teresa of Avila. Yeah. Uh, who? No. I was almost at George Eliot again. Yeah. Um, but it, it does seem like the question is like, when I do this, I just want to start listening to nonstop erotic audiobooks. Yeah. That's going to be my new thing. Yeah. That will keep me from getting bored. It's pretty funny that we both went to the most extreme version of this. <laughs> we were both imagining, like, once once you've popped that particular bubble, you know, it's just going to be wall-to-wall audio porn. I think when it comes to finding a way to eroticize boredom at work. Yeah. Given that There's this There's a lot is, of boredom. <laughs> you know, that's just going to be easier and easier to dip into. I think that's probably true. Um, and yeah. so I think what I would suggest is if you, music and podcasts still bore you, uh, why not watch TV shows? Yeah. Or movies, mm-hmm. um, which are slightly more engaging and slightly less, you know, monotonous, um, but are not necessarily the kind of thing that could potentially lead to a really, really embarrassing moment at work. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I, certainly, I don't, I'm not going to come like yell at you if right. one time you're like, I listened to a few chapters of an erotic audiobook and had mm-hmm. a slightly thrilling day at work. All right, congrats. Mm-hmm. You know, great. That's a, that's a story. Yeah, you know, your yeah. grandkids will be happy about that. I don't think that that's a story you need to tell your grandchildren. You're probably right. About that. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But yeah, you know, congratulations on, you know, having a high skill job, an office with a door, um, the freedom to listen to music and podcasts when you're doing the boring aspects of your job. That's really great. Mm-hmm. All those are really good things. Um, and I hope that you are able to find a happy medium in between mm-hmm. just nonstop audio erotica and working in drab silence. There's got to be a midpoint. I think so. Yeah. I have no good segue for the next letter. I well, was... you know, is, is, is a good segue from audio porn at work. Also, I realize erotic books on tape is not the same as audio porn. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a long uh, continuum, I guess. Yeah. From sort of like and then frothy of romance how, to how just... How can we actually leave this question without addressing just for a moment uh, the, the, the question of what counts as an erotic book? Uh, I mean... There are books that different people will... F- I, I realize that there are books that are sold, written, marketed, and mostly consumed as a form of erotic entertainment. Mm-hmm. But there are erotic moments uh, in a wide number of books that don't fit into that generic designation. Um, you know, Maybe that- maybe just listen to uh, <laughs> regular literature and find it erotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're reading Villette, for example, and you just sort of chance upon uh, the Vashti sequence, you're going to have a hard time at work. And that's a Grace Lavery guarantee. <laughs> She's an English professor. She knows. It's a hot book. I have said all that I need to say about Villette. It is a great book. And it it's is. fabulous. Um, for my money, the most erotic scene is when um, everyone yells at her until she cross-dresses in that play with Ginevra. I agree with you. That's a pretty hot sequence. And when she, like, furiously gives her all her coffee and is like, you're weak and this is why you need my coffee. Mm-hmm. It's a good scene. Yeah. I hope right. you're not listening to this at work. I am not. I'm listening to you. Oh, I'm not talking to you. Oh. You're, this is your work. Oh, okay. I'm talking to the people who are listening to this. I thought you were talking to me. I, you know, I'm assuming that your, your recollection of sequences in Villette is going to be exciting to some people. I hope this helped someone. Yeah, me too. Subject of this next letter. Pill-popping husband. Yeah. Nothing erotic about this. Nothing in the least. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been married almost 40 years. He's an alcoholic who generally manages to control himself pretty well. But in the last two years, we've had some upsetting experiences with his taking opioids. There isn't a pill on this earth that he won't try. Last year, he went into a coma and was in the ICU for a month. And there have been a few similar incidents. He's also ruined many family events, including a family reunion, my mom's 90th birthday party, a family cruise, and our 2017 Thanksgiving dinner. Our whole family watched as he garbled his words, started to turn blue, and had to be rushed to the ER. My question is, how do I tell him that he's no longer welcome at family events? I can't enjoy them because I have to constantly watch him, and the rest of the extended family is sick and tired of the commotion he causes. He has no close relatives, so holidays and parties are limited to my side of the family. After one of these horrible incidents, he said, well, I think I have a problem, and that's where it ended. What do I say when the holidays roll around? I want to say, I'm going to Thanksgiving dinner in New Jersey. Here is your Swanson turkey dinner. Enjoy. But that seems cruel. Help, please. Oof, yeah, this one is is really hard. I got to say, too, um, one of the ways in which people can just normalize absolutely catastrophic alcoholism and drug abuse. Um, he, you, you say that your husband generally manages to control himself pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then you go on to describe one of the most out of control people I can possibly imagine. He was in a coma. He was in a coma for a month. No, he was in the ICU for a month. I'm sorry, he you're was right. in a coma and then he was in the ICU for a month. And and, and then just that that throwaway bit at the end of that sentence. There've been a few similar incidents. <sighs> yeah. Like that happens That's not so often. Unru- yeah. I don't need to go into detail. You know, 
He he had what appeared to be some sort of stroke at Thanksgiving of last year. I mean, this is not... He does not control himself pretty well. No, absolutely not. He doesn't control himself at all. You say, there's not a pill on earth he won't try. There's no control in this letter anywhere. Yeah, which, you know... The, the sentence, he's an alcoholic who generally manages to control himself pretty well, does not generally comport with my understanding of alcoholism. Um, you know, if you're an alcoholic who generally manages to control yourself pretty well, you're probably not an alcoholic. Um, and if this is your life, you are an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Usually, I, I think a lot of times what people mean by that is something like, um, I have a job yeah. or I have somewhere to sleep at night or I still have people in my life who will talk to me mm-hmm. um, or I come from a well-off family. Yeah, or I have like a a safety net. Yeah, which is not the same thing as controlling yourself. It it, it isn't, and you know one of the things that I I often think, I, you know, I I can talk a little from personal experience here. Um, you know, I I, I I'm an alcoholic. I've been I've been sober for a while. Um, one of the things that that I have learned is that trying to control yourself is. I mean, what I found for myself is that trying to control myself was the problem. Um, I'm an alcoholic who has not had a drink in a little while. Um, but I do not control myself pretty well at all. I, I, I tried to control myself for many years, and that was very, very hard. Um, not drinking is, is a, just a different thing to controlling yourself better. Yeah. So certainly, I know the the only question that has been asked of us here is how do I tell my husband that I can't take him mm-hmm. to any more family events, which I think is very fair. And, and... Yeah, I, it is, although if somebody is asking that question, um, the, the implied question is, uh, what do you want out of the situation? Right. Or, or you know, w- what are you hoping to get? Do you believe that you can control your husband's drinking through trying to sort of find the right way to manipulate them? Do you believe that if you give them enough attention in the right way but withhold attention strategically, um, if you participate in some parts of his life and refuse to participate in others, then you are going to, you know, get him sober or get him into a situation where he controls his drinking pretty well, as right. you say. And that, you know, I, I don't think that's how that works. Um, I think your priority here has to be yourself and your family. Um, and you figure out what you want and then you ask for it and you get it. Uh, and you, you you realize that he will have his own responses to that. It will be difficult. Uh, the situation in which he finds himself, as you describe it, is pretty dire. Um, he's clearly, you know... He, he's he's not there yet. He's clearly got a little further to fall before um, uh, before he's willing to to really try to address this problem. But that that is not something that is within your power to control. Um, what do you want here? What are you trying to get? The the degree to which you are trying to control his drinking is the degree to which you'll make yourself pretty unhappy, um, and the degree to which you're able to prioritize your own needs and your own safety in this situation. Um, I think you're more likely to, to to get some traction. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's exactly what I think is the, the more important question. Um, and I think the fact that it opens with, we've been married almost 40 years, there's a lot in that little sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can imagine that there are a lot of ways in which it feels like this person has been my partner my whole, mm-hmm. most of my adult life. I can't abandon him now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, by the way, we are not suggesting like walk out the door tomorrow, but I do think um, for you to figure out, do I want to spend whatever the remainder of my life is um, managing my husband's alcoholism and pill addiction? Mm-hmm. Or would I like something else for my life? 
And if the answer is, I would like something else for my life, um, how can you get the help that you need in going about and getting that? Because your husband can't stop you from that. So one of the really difficult aspects of this question for you, letter writer, is likely to be, why have you over 40 years stayed with somebody who has done all of this so often, who has been you know, hospitalized, who has uh, disrupted or ruined family events? What are you getting out of being in a relationship with somebody who is so clearly out of control? Um, and w- what would it mean for you to get honest with yourself about your own intentions and your own priorities here? That's not, it's not an easy question because one of the things that people who aren't alcoholics get from hanging around alcoholics is a fantasy of control. Um, and a fantasy that if they just, if, you know, and I have this experience too, if we just sort of, if we, if we are withholding and giving in some adequate measure, um, We'll we'll get what we want from from somebody who is out of control, but that 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 just it, it's not going to work, right? And that's not to say, you know, figure out why all of this is my fault and I am a bad person, which oh, I God, can no. imagine would Absolutely be not. an easy place to go to. Um, that's not the question in front of you, um, and, and it's not certainly like, well, why didn't I just walk away? You know, twenty eight years ago, two years ago, whenever. Mm-hmm. Um, but simply to ask in as morally neutral a way as you can. Yeah. Um, what have I been getting out of this? Because of course, you know, I, I imagine you love your husband. There's a sense of loyalty. There's a sense of duty. There's a sense of shared history, and the fact that he is your husband. I'm not suggesting that you should just throw all that out the window and, um, you know, act in like a perfect sense of self-interest at all times. But yeah, to to say, you know. Is there anybody else in my life where if all of these things had happened, I would be trying to figure out how to like gently say, I'm going to Thanksgiving alone? Or would we have had some other conversation? Would there have been some other breaking point? Would I have asked something else? Um, So um, therapy may certainly prove helpful. Uh, uh, Al-Anon or similar groups um, to that, I think, would probably prove quite helpful um, and figuring out not just how am I going to react to my husband's periodic hospitalizations, but how do I figure out what I want? Um, and how do I ask for that? I think the situation in which you find yourself, uh, in which this letter writer finds herself or himself, is is just extremely difficult. And, and I I think uh, this letter writer really has my 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 deep deep sympathy and empathy, and it's hard. Yep, and and I'm glad that um, your family is setting some limits for themselves. Uh, I imagine that's been pretty traumatic for them. Um, and I hope that you have a lot of people in your life who can help you as you kind of come to terms with the fact that one of the stories you've been telling yourself, which is that it's really only the last two years that we've had a couple little hiccups, but really he controls himself pretty well. Um, it's just a fantasy. It's not true. Mm-hmm. It's contradicted by the rest of your letter. Um, and that's probably going to feel really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hope that you have a lot of people um, who can be there for you in a meaningful way. Namely, they can listen to you and talk to you and they're not fucked up yeah Um, and the question you get to ask is what does recovery look like for you if your husband never gets sober you know what 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 does a good life look like a meaningful life look like for you um in which your husband's relation to alcohol is not the guiding uh force right which is going to be really hard because it'll just feel like if i can put enough pressure on these points and distance myself on these other points i'll be able to create the perfect conditions for my husband to get sober in yeah and that is another fantasy that is not going to serve you well. Mm-hmm. Um, but good luck. Godspeed. Good, yeah. yeah, good luck with this. It's, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. All right, uh, next letter is all you. Okay. I'm crushing real hard. Oh, real hard. Dear Prudence, I'm in a long-term relationship with someone I truly love and cherish. 
But we've been together for a while, and there are moments when I wish I was with someone else. Someone else in particular. I'm bi, and I have a co-worker who I am head over heels for. They're smart, funny, witty, and nerdy. I'm smitten. We work closely in a difficult field. Nothing inappropriate has happened, or will, but I find myself longing to be with them. It doesn't help that they're the opposite gender of my partner, and my bi heart is beating its bi beats. I've tried distancing myself, but it's hard when my co-worker also shows signs of liking me back. They have a partner as well. I'm in my late 20s. I thought I was done with crushes. I don't know what to do. So one of the things that I kind of loved about this letter is I get the opposite of this letter fairly often. Why do people always think that bisexuals are always going to leave their partner for a partner of another sex? Yeah, and this this person just seems kind of real comfortable with, like, leaning directly into mm-hmm. that big fear so yeah. many people seem to have, which I, is just like, the like, implication here is like, well, I'm bisexual. It's it's, it's a lot to ask me I to like be to with one partner. with men and women. So obviously <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to want to cheat on my partner with a hot coworker. Yeah. Um, and when I say I love this and I find it kind of charming, I don't I, I don't mean like obviously this is what everyone's afraid of because it's what's going to happen. I just mm-hmm. mean it's sort of fascinating to see somebody. I think a little more f- than fascinating. I think it's kind of fabulous. Uh, I appreciate the kind of uh, the, the gutsy self-knowledge here, um, e- even though I just to be really clear, don't think this is generally true of all bisexual people, um, obviously. But I but I appreciate the kind of candor that this letter writer has accessed. And I really enjoy the phrase, my bi heart is beating its bi beats. Mm, I differ with you there. Yeah, I, I don't know. love it. Yeah. Um, we feel differently about alliteration in general, I think. It's true. But I enjoyed it so uh, much that I'm going to say it one more time. My <laughs> bi heart is beating its bi beats. All right. Well, you know, this is kind of the opposite of how you were saying Jared. So I'm glad you found another phrase in yeah. this um, episode that meant a lot to you. Yeah, um, I appreciate the candor. My guess is their candor is going to stop right up at the moment that it gets to <laughs> I just want to do something and I'll look for any reason to justify yeah, it. I think that's which is sort of like, you know, cheating is good if you have a sort of bisexual reason to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it is the same problem as with any relationship. You would like to cheat on your partner, but you don't want to hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. You are hoping for a loophole that will make your cheating um, sort of like interesting or like queer positive mm-hmm. or nice or justifiable. Necessary. Yeah, good necessary. Course, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's good for you. It's a requirement yeah. to make you be a fulfilled person. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know why you thought you would be done with crushes in your late 20s. Yeah. What is it about turning 30 that means you stop liking people overwhelmingly? Keep crushing. Crushes keep, keep crushing it. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of, like, continuing or not. I think people just have crushes mostly throughout their whole lives. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think that's that's good. Having crushes is nice. Um, it leads to complex feelings and interactions, especially when um, the, the, the person that you are crushing on uh, differs in important ways from your, your partner if you've made a kind of monogamous commitment to them. You Grace just leveled me with like the most. <laughs> if she had glasses on, she would have pushed them all the way down to the tip of her nose to look over them at me. Um, I, I, I do. I do. I actually want to spin out yeah. two scenarios for this okay. letter writer. Because um, I, I mean, I, obviously implied here is the fact that they have a monogamous connection. Yeah. Because if they did not, the letter would just be. I'm going to. You know, how you are know, we going to coordinate our schedules? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's kind of two things you can do right now with the level of honesty you've been able to reach with yourself um, and the feelings that you're sitting with. 
One is uh, to focus a lot of this emotional energy into reading the signs of this coworker um, and playing little games. Like if you show up a little early for work and you look extra cute, do they respond in some way? Um, if you try to walk past their desk and come up with excuses to talk to them, do they respond? If you throw out a little bait, are they going to nibble at it um, and spend more and more time and emotional energy on that particular fantasy um, until potentially, eventually you end up in a situation where, oh, my gosh, we fell into bed. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? What do I do now? And then the story is just we were so overwhelmed by our personal connection. It was stronger than anything. You know, the human heart is the greatest force of all. What's to be done? Um, How could this possibly have happened? When, in fact, um, you will have created that situation through a series of small choices, um, that it was not some unstoppable force that happened to you. Um, You wanted to go in a particular direction. So you took a series of very small steps Mm -hmm. and pretended that you fell. Um, uh, I think it's clear how how much... um, I respect that kind of choice, uh-huh. um, which is not much. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it would be one that would end really well for you. I don't think that you would feel really great. I don't think it would end happily for all four of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm how not- do you avoid the fantasy that what your erotic attractions are irresistible? Because that seems to be part of the question, right? We, 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 not just in this context, but more broadly, I think people often fool themselves into thinking they had no choice in mm-hmm. relation to their erotic desires. And what you're saying you, Danny, not you, letter writer, is that, in fact, the the appearance that, that something is irresistible is very frequently, and in this case, for example, um, the result of a set of small, only half-articulated or half-understood choices, but nonetheless, uh, conscious decision-making. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a fabulous response for that, but I do think that one thing to do is, uh, again, sort of in as morally neutral a way as possible throughout the day, um, Notice those. Mm-hmm. Uh, identify those moments. Call them what they are. If you find yourself making one of those choices, say to yourself, I am doing this right now and here's what I'm getting out of it. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm getting attention. I feel attractive. I feel desirable. Um, I feel uh, illicit in a way that makes me feel sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel powerfully bisexual. I feel like I'm affirming a part of myself that my relationship does not affirm. Um, and and register those moments. You know, you're not a bad person for wanting to feel any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, by virtue of being in a monogamous relationship does not mean that smiling at a cute coworker mm-hmm. um, means that you are, you know, heading down the road to perdition and and doing bad things. I think it's just, it's good to avow and acknowledge things that right now a part of you is going to want to pretend are happening accidentally. And another option that you have is talking to your partner. Mm -hmm. How would that work? Well, you love and cherish your partner and you have moments when you wish you were with someone else and you're not talking to them about it because you feel like, I assume, in order, um, if you did so, uh, you would be asking to break up and you're not asking to break up. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the nature of being in a long-term monogamous relationship and the occasional, you know, frustrations, dissatisfactions, mm-hmm. uh, restlessness that might come with that. Y- you should do that. Yeah, that's a good conversation to have. And, and, you know, if one of those conversations, you bring up the coworker, I think that would also be a good thing. I think that's true. There's a range of possible outcomes that such a conversation might entail that would ra- ra- range from... Uh, you get something out of the relationship that you want more than you want to, you know, flirt or pursue some kind of intimacy with the coworker. Um, you decide that you want to flirt with the coworker m- more and decide to end the relationship. Uh, you collectively, with your partner, decide that the idea of you um, hooking up with the coworker is something that you could both get into, um, and you do that, and it's fine or not fine, and you figure out how to make that 
happen with a new relationship. Um, you decide that you don't want to end the relationship, but you want to have sex with the coworker anyway, in which case that's probably going to be a hard thing. and maybe you're... Especially because they have a partner as well. Yeah. Maybe your partner is going to end the relationship in that case. Um, you have many options, but uh, you, you get there through the conversation with the partner, not through the sort of, you know, the heart wants what it wants, self-mystification. Right. Because I think there's a way in which it feels like the only way I could ever get what I want is if eventually something happened that was so big and mm-hmm. so against my like stated values that I could say mm-hmm. this was just a bisexual hurricane that happened to me mm-hmm. out of my control. Now we don't have to have the conversation because this thing happened. Yeah. That would be the only grounds upon which I could state my desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it. Stating your desires is very difficult, especially when you feel like simply wanting something is not a good reason to talk about it. Um, but I think especially if your idea that now that you're in your late 20s and in a long-term relationship, you're not going to have crushes on people anymore. That is setting yourself up for at the very least, frustration in your relationship um, certainly is, uh, creates a big old room for cheating. And let's take a moment to just talk about how great it is to have unrequited crushes. It is fabulous. Uh, it, it fills the heart uh, with light and delight. Uh, it fills uh, one step with a spring. Uh, it gives you something to talk about. It gives you something to giggle about. Gives um, structure to the day. Gives structure to the day. Gives you some Instagram posts to like. Worked out great in the Blue Angel. <laughs> Uh, and it can lead to really enriching conversations about what you want, who you are, what's important to you, what are your values, what are your kind of like erotic values. Yeah. Um, you could start an erotic audiobook about this very thing and yeah. sell it to the letter writer who wants to listen to this stuff at work. Maybe the letter writer from the other one is the co-worker in question. Oh, God, that'd be amazing. Uh, or horrible, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I, I, I think the thing to, to bear in mind is that... Um, Crushes are not something that you should not talk about just because mm-hmm. you're in a relationship. And if you put crushes in the same category as cheating um, and you make it this whole big forbidden zone, it will feel like every time you are attracted to somebody's smile or you have mm-hmm. a like particularly charged conversation at work that just felt like, God, I just can't stop thinking about it. I felt so great. Those are all going to feel like bad, off-limits, mm. wrong, something you have to hide from your partner rather than a part of yeah. your life that you would want to share with your partner. Take steps to protect yourself from unnecessary shame. We already have a pull quote, but there's yeah. a second one. I don't even know if we do pull quotes. I just like making that sort of announcement. Um, but good luck. I, yeah. I think clearly part of what is just going on here is that, like, you need to figure out ways to talk about your bisexuality and your relationship with your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, something about that is not getting um, acknowledged, supported, affirmed, uh, and and you want it to. Mm-hmm. And so start talking about that. Yep. Before cheating. Before cheating. Yeah. Don't cheat. Or like, you know, you can cheat. We can I was all just cheat. Telling you like, at that yeah. Point. <laughs> oh, that was just me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, right there with you, friend. Um uh but yeah, uh, there are a lot of better options than just, oh dear, I have cheated on you. Now we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um talk about things before you have to. All right. This last one. I it's did, the Brandon letter. I uh the Brandenburg concerto. Oh man, yeah, that's one hundred percent. Um there's a lot here. It's 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 amazing. I did not edit it down at all. Good. Um, And now I will read it. The subject is, No gift from my child's classmate at his birthday party. Dear Prudence, Right after my three-year-old started at a new preschool, he was invited to and attended the birthday party of a classmate, Brandon. A few weeks later, we received a thank you card from Brandon's parents for attending, but no mention of the gift that we brought. 
I thought it was curious not to mention it, but Mm. maybe it's not the norm for everyone, or maybe it's just difficult to keep track of which gift was from whom. Though the thought did occur to me that maybe the card became detached from the gift before they opened it, and so they didn't even know that we brought one. But I wasn't very concerned about it, and pretty much forgot about it completely. Fast forward a few months later, and it's my son's birthday party. We were very careful to keep track of who each gift was from, though in packing up the gifts, a couple of cards did become dislodged from their respective packages, and we had to make a couple of guesses. However, there did not seem to be either a gift or even a card from Brandon who did attend. It is, of course, still possible that we have misplaced either the card or the gift somehow, but now I can't help but wonder if they somehow did not receive our son's gift to Brandon after all, or if they did receive it but misattributed the identity of the gifter. They are not, I'm fairly certain, any less than very well off, so I doubt it was a real burden to bring a gift. I think it's more likely that either we have lost their gift, or they chose not to bring a gift because they believe we didn't bring a gift to Brandon's party. And to be honest, I think it's probably the latter. And yet I find even that to be surprising, as it seems a tad petty. Obviously, this is not a matter of dire consequence. I could just easily never think about it again, except we need to send them a thank you card now. I suppose the easiest thing to do is to thank them for attending and not mention the missing gift at all. I'm afraid if I ask if they brought a gift, it would be confrontational or rude, especially if they think we didn't bring a gift for Brandon. I really barely care if they brought a gift or not, Mm. but I do care if they were mistakenly miffed, thinking we didn't bring a gift for Brandon. What would Prudy do? Simply thank them for attending and don't worry anymore about either gift? Somehow either directly or subtly inquire about their gift or lack thereof? Mention anything about our gift to Brandon? I'm guessing that you would just thank them for attending and move on, which seems like the wisest course of action to me, but I'm just not certain. There's a lot. Stiffed. In this letter. For and a gift. Stiffed for a gift is absolutely what I should have renamed it, and I'm but sorry. But she's not miffed. Um, we assume it's a she. I think there are grounds... They're not miffed. Yeah, I, I think there are grounds to assume that this is um, most likely um, a woman, um, but... It could be either. You're quite right. Yeah. Quite um, right. Could be could be any number of, of configurations in this uh, parental relationship. But th- they're, they're, this sounds exhausting. I was exhausted reading this letter. Oh, I just think it's fabulous. It reads like a poem. The rhymes of gift with miffed. The kind of uh, the, the recurrence of the word Brandon as a kind of motif every now and then. I just think it's very engaging. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of little asides. <laughs> yeah, I like it very much. Yep. Um, it's, a, it's a fun narrative. Um, and... God, I mean, I just think being a parent must be really tricky. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't think this is the biggest problem in the world. I, I probably don't think it's the biggest problem that you're going to encounter this month. But um, yeah, it, I can imagine it would be frustrating. And, and one day I would get home and I would be exasperated and I would write a really long and detailed letter uh, to an advice column um, trying to just get a straightforward answer to a, a question of social mores. That was exasperating me at one moment. I find the the idea of writing this letter uh, deeply relatable, and I also think it's got a sort of tricky thematic palette. There's sort of interesting questions that it raises. Yeah, and and I think that there's an undercurrent of that throughout the whole. Like, I think the letter writer is aware. Yeah, I am spiraling here. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Somebody help me. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I I can't stop spiraling. I know this does not strictly matter. <laughs> yeah. But I cannot stop my brain from going over yeah, and over exactly. and over and over this. Um, this is uh, certainly I have had similar moments when I have worried. Like, did somebody mishear me say something eight years ago at a party? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, should I call everyone I have ever met? Yeah. Um, to find out. I know that that is not a reasonable way to live my life, and yet that's 
all my brain wants mm-hmm. to do. Um, and I think certainly if you have a three-year-old um, and they are already at this level, like this sounds like you are attending the wed- the wedding of like the godfather's daughter, mm-hmm. like this level of who brought presents for whom and Did where are the gift the cards. Did they get but lose the gift? Did they uh, give the gift note? Did they bring a present and I lost it? Did they bring a present and forget a note? Did I leave the note? Do they think that I am withholding gifts? Do I think that they're withholding gifts? Are we having a spat now? Right. So at least some of this is just the problem of like three-year-olds who are highly scheduled and have a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, because a lot of three-year-olds are very happy if you give them a sock mm-hmm. and you say, what do you think this sock's name is? Mm-hmm. And then they get to run off and, and do that, um, which is not to say the solution to your problem is to go live in the woods. Um, radical simplicity only buy your child a wooden block mm-hmm. once every five years. Um, block. You no, just, just the one block. Yeah, <laughs> just the one block so that yeah. by the age of 10, they can construct like half of a door. You keep buying it. You yeah. buy the lease on it for another year. <laughs> you re-up the block. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I think at least part of this is this sense of like, how is a three-year-old's birthday party already this complicated? And Your Christmas present this year is you get to keep what you already have. Yeah. That you have. <laughs> I've given you the gift of life. Yeah. I, there's a roof over your head. Um, you is get the to block ex- not enough for you? Yeah. I, I certainly don't remember what I got for Christmas when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. So the question of what should I do, mm-hmm. I think is very straightforward. Write a letter thanking them for attending yes. and move on with your life. I agree. I, I, I also sometimes feel like if there is somebody out there who thinks slightly worse of me than I think they should, mm-hmm. um, part of me wants to burn down the entire world and remake it in my own image until everyone thinks exactly of me as I think that they should. Uh-huh. So I relate to that. But um, there's just no way to do that here. And you'll just have to live with the fact that there is a possibility that the parents of some kids you know mm-hmm. think you once attended a three-year-old's birthday party without bringing a present. Mm-hmm. That is okay. You will survive. Your friendship with this person will survive. Yeah, that's not... Such, a... as, such as you need a friendship with this person, such as you need a kind of co... Uh, you know, collegial is not the right word, but sort of social communitarian relation with this person. Mm-hmm. It, it, it will survive the possibility of... Um, a disrupted gift economy. Yeah. And the, any sort of digging to find out what may or may not be going on in their minds will not, in fact, relieve any of your anxiety, will mm-hmm. not make you feel any more relaxed. Um, it will, like, kind of take you deeper into this world of, like, three-year-old intrigue um, mm-hmm. where everything has to be sort of, like, triple confirmed through your network of spies. Yeah. And totally. that will just make you feel bonkers. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that is striking about this is that when I was growing up, I don't believe that I had many parties where me and other three-year-olds would get together with our parents and exchange gifts. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe that did happen. Um, but I'm wondering about... Yeah, I'm just wondering what sort of community this is, what this is. is. This is probably quite a common thing, right? This is probably just a fairly normal thing, fairly, fairly universal. My guess is yeah. uh, it's... Uh, slightly well-off families. That's my instinct. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who often have at least one parent who is home full-time with the kids. Probably usually the moms. Yeah. um, Because that's the the status symbol. Sure. Still. Um, And there's a lot, there's a lot going into keeping up appearances. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if, you know, again, not to say that there's anything wrong with having big parties for three-year-olds, but Mm -hmm. um, if you're at the level of writing individual thank you notes with detailed descriptions of like you know mm-hmm. young Treviathan 
yeah. um, really enjoyed his block. Um, here's what yeah. he's been doing with it over the last week. Like, it's pretty elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that, that requires a lot. Um, yeah. Women who are staying at home to look after their kids full time do such a lot and have so much to do. Um, yeah. And I don't want to make too many assumptions about the letter writer here because they, they don't. But even if the... so, they don't give so much by way of self-disclosure. But I have that sense too that there is a sort of well-to-do vibe here. Uh-huh. To which extent, I, I would recommend uh, Betty Friedan's book, *The Feminine Mystique*, which I was reading myself recently, and has a lot to say. I think about um, the 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 idea of sufficiency, feminine. The, the idea of women, especially educated women. Um, who have, you know, all of their basic needs being met, but find their minds sort of obsessing over these kinds of social problems, uh, the kind of odd mental texture of these problems that get a uh, an intensity way out of proportion to their seriousness. Um, yeah, I think it's something that, that you know, obviously Friedan's book is se- severely out of date and... and, and, and uh, it's it's a relic from another age, and I'm not recommending it in any way fundamentally different to the way I would recommend Villette. But as an historical artifact about this phenomenon, um, I think it's an interesting one. Well, I, I think that's an excellent point. We're, like, I think there are um, clues in this letter that mm-hmm. can lead us to make some assumptions about possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of the gender of this particular letter writer, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not this particular letter writer is is well off, mm-hmm. um, this does illustrate, as you say, a recognizable phenomenon about which uh, a number of people have written very thoughtfully and very carefully. Um, I would not recommend The Feminine Mystique to any writer with any problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this particular example, I think it would be interesting reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say this is a dumb problem and you shouldn't care about it. God, no. Or that your solution is just opt out. Yeah. Um, but the problem in a way is not what are Brandon's parents going to think. The problem is why does the question of what Brandon's parents think of me occupy this kind of role in my mind? Or, or why is it doing this kind of obsessive work and producing these kinds of obsessive thought patterns? Right. Um, and that's a real problem. That's not a fake problem. That's a, that is a, a real and consequential problem. Yeah. And it's a lot to deal with. And frankly, you, you write letters extremely well. Yeah, I, like, I, agree. I I found this to be a really charming sort of um, self-aware examination of like, I know I'm obsessing. Yeah. I know I'm ruminating. I know it's a lot. Yeah. I wish I weren't. I can hear myself saying these things. And, and I know that I have a different sense of scale, but it's happening anyways. And you should somebody needs to pay attention because I would like some support. Yeah, um, I'm nodding along vigorously. I like this person very much. Yeah, yeah. I think I would be good friends with this person. I, I, I hope that whoever this letter writer is, that they write. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if they would want to write about um, their experiences parenting or about something else completely mm-hmm. unrelated, but um, I hope that you write. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way out of these kinds of questions, or these kind of problems. Yeah, even if it's just writing about how you feel about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Uh, I I, w- I would love to get an update from this letter writer. I often, I actually also want one from the uh, erotic audiobooks person, yeah. <laughs> just because I would love to know either like you're right, I'm just gonna like watch old TV shows, um, mm-hmm. or nope, I doubling like, down. Yeah, I downloaded like <laughs> thirty, and this is just my new. Yeah. This is me now, as Gene Belcher would say. Mm-hmm. I love saying this is me now. Mm-hmm. I say this is me now about once every six months, and I'm usually wrong. Gene Belcher, T for T energy. Ah, <sighs> Grace. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being so haveable. Thank you for being so good at having. I 
I should never get started with these things with you because you will always finish them. <laughs> I'll stop that. I always blush first. <laughs> I'm doing great. And I think you're wonderful. The last time you were on the show, you were my best friend. And uh, now you are my girlfriend. And I think that that's great. And I hope that every time you come on the show, we have some new and exciting updates. I look forward to that. Yeah. Um, I love you real bad. And uh, after this, you do you want to go to the grocery store? Yeah. Great. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR-3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute. Tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 